Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a real-life human who used to be growing corn, but now squirrels are happening instead, about the plot of an opera, and then we ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no clue what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is. It's Richard Strauss. And if you want to know about him, you can go back and listen to Tina and Amanda's favorite episode, the one where we fell in nerd love, episode three, Daphne. But instead, tonight, I'm going to be telling you about the librettist. Amanda, you got one minute on the clock. Ready, set, go. Hugo Lawrence August Hoffmann von Hoffmannsthal was an Austrian-born prodigy. The guy was a novelist, poet, essayist, playwright, narrator, and of course, a librettist. He was born in 1874 to an upper-class Catholic family, but his great-grandfather had been a Jewish tobacco farmer who was ennobled by the Austrian emperor because priorities. At school, he began publishing plays and poems under a pseudonym because students weren't allowed to publish. Why? Because people are dicks, Timmy. That's why. 1901 was a big year. He graduated, got Gertrude Schlesinger, Schlesinger to convert for him, married her, became a member of the avant-garde writers group, Young Vienna, and most importantly, met composer Richard Strauss. Over the next 30 years, years, oh my god, over the next 30 years, <laughs> that was a bad phrase to put in there. Keep going. God damn it. You got 20 seconds. Go. Oh, no, I can't do it. Over the next 30 years, Hugo would continue to write all across areas while writing a libretti for six Strauss operas. He had a national identity and believed artists should be the world of the world and politically active and that art should inspire and inflame human instincts rather than merely preserve them. Oddly, he saw Britain as the epitome of this model in a society in which artists were soldiers and sol- soldiers were artists, I guess. This probably appealed to Hugo due to the large-scale fragmentation of Austrian society in the Time. form of the <laughs> Some 30-ish odd years, is that what it was you were trying I'm to say? really fucking upset. I'm really upset. Yeah, but you know what? When I didn't stumble over my words, when I did this a half an hour ago by myself, it was under a minute. I'm very upset. I kind of have that effect on people. I get that as a piano teacher all the time. It was so good when I practiced, but you're making me nervous. I didn't warm up my face. I didn't warm up my tongue. I'm probably a little dehydrated. I have a little bit of like that wonderful... The trees are having sex post-nasal drip that we get this time of year. That's just kind of putting pressure on my noise-making apparatus eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what I was going to say is that, so basically he had this like really strong identity that was rooted in his Austrian-ness. And that after the... The wor- after World War One, if which if everybody remembers, was started by the assassination of an Austrian. Noble Franz Ferdinand. Person. Yeah, yeah. Was that was that the emperor? Was he the emperor at the time? No, no. He was like an ambassador. He was an or archduke. Something. Archduke Thank Franz you. Ferdinand. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. He and his um, wife were shot in a car, JFK style. Yep, JFK style. Yep, got it. Um, but basically, at the end of World War One, the Habsburg empire which was like the the royal family of austria and had been for well and not just austria like prussia like all of this huge area of europe um was no longer a thing so that empire was done and that was apparently like a blow to his national pride that he never quite recovered from i didn't see anything like he he married a woman 
who was the daughter of a Jewish banker, but she had to convert to Catholicism to marry him because Catholicism is kind mm-hmm. of a bitch. Um, but I, I don't see anything in this limited, you know, Wikipedia research of him being anti-Semitic, which also lines up with Strauss. Strauss also had Jewish family members, really close family members. And this all, like their their careers, both of them happened where this like huge sense of, okay, now we're going to be nationalists and we're going to be anti-Semites was in flux, which reminds me a fuck ton of what we're kind of experiencing right now where we're just having this like massive rending apart of Mm-hmm. huge swaths of people based on ideology in america i'm sorry did you just compare america to pre-nazi germany because like that's been done before <laughs> yeah i know i mean if it's a, if the shoe fits fuck <laughs> yeah yeah touche anyways anyway i mean i get it it's taboo it's not taboo it's cliche and it's not necessarily the best analogy but i think in this regard where we're seeing just this like total ideological polarization and it's causing people to have to like decide what side of a line they stand on or if they're going to straddle the middle they better have a really good justification why Mm -hmm. um like strauss who straddled the middle but had a really good justification why he had a justification why and he also made it his job to anchor what he saw like he straddled the middle but he saw that there was a wrong side of things and mm-hmm. he only really straddled it so that he could, like, try to move that wrong side of things, like, subversively over to the right side of things. Um, I don't think that that was a huge – and, I'm again, I'm basing this off of just nothing. So, please, if you are a listener who is, like, a super Hugo Lawrence August Hoffman von Hoffmannsthal fan and know everything about him, please <laughs> let me know if I'm wrong. Um, I didn't see anything that suggested to me that he was anti – anti-semitism or he was pro anti-semitism or anything like that basically what his big thing was was that artists should be of the world and be politically active and that art should inspire and inflame human instinct rather than just preserve it and like showcase it for looking at purposes um and this is funny he saw britain as being like the epitome of this model because like there's apparently a couple of specific artists in in British culture at the time that were soldiers. And so um again this probably appealed to him because of the fragmentation that he saw where you were having these these strong lines drawn in the sand between people in politics, people who were and by in politics I mean like people who were driving social change and people who were legislating and people who were lobbying. And then artists who were commenting yeah. on it were two entirely separate groups of people. And that's pretty much it. Although, fun fact, um, he died of a stroke shortly after the death. <laughs> fun of... fact. Well, this no, I'm getting to, Hang on. Sorry. I'm getting there. Sorry. I'm getting there. This isn't the fun part. In fact, it's two very unfun parts. Content warning. Um, he died of a stroke shortly after the funeral of his middle child at age 26 who died by suicide. He was buried in the habit of a Franciscan tertiary, which I had to look up. This is, so St. Francis is the patron saint of like animals and gardening and being out in nature and caring for nature. And really honestly, like of all of the patron saints of anything, he's 
he's pretty legit. Like he's yeah. just a, he's a conservationist. <laughs> like you really can't argue with the guy. He hasn't he doesn't say anything objectionable to my knowledge. The the order like so Franciscan nuns and monks. There was a large enough number of people back in some time period pre 1800s pre probably pre 1700s um in which people who wanted to be of the franciscan order there were enough of them were like but also i'm married and i really don't i want to stay married can i still be part of this awesome club where we care for nature and like each other and they were like "Mm, yeah yeah you can and so they made this tertiary um uh section or like uh um i don't i can't even think of the club word I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah basically you're not like a full-on monk but you're you're, you're like a tertiary monk but you're and like you... devoted to the the devotion of this order I yeah guess. so like they didn't live in an abbey and they mm-hmm. didn't have to swear celibacy but they would like meet in community like have a have services and like meetings around being part of this lifestyle so i thought that was really kind of awesome yeah yeah he i was, will agree with he that he was buried in that costume which i don't i couldn't find a picture of what it looks like i'm assuming it looks a lot like what the traditional franciscan monks look like which is a brown like caftan <laughs> with a white <laughs> belt around the middle <laughs> made out of rope. I love that so much. I I love that our boy is like a tree-hugging hippie writer who thinks that artists should be people and people should be artists. I know. I know. And not just people, but like politically active people. I really dig on this because I get so fucking tired of in the handful of opera groups that I'm in on like Facebook and stuff like that i i get so tired of people saying things like oh does this have to be political i'm like okay first of all (laughs) literally everything is political and if you don't see that it's because of your privilege and you're not paying attention second of all what are we doing this for if not to change the world like Mm -hmm. why are you alive Yeah. Oh my gosh. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's part of the reason why you and I really love Verdi, first of all. Yeah. And Strauss. Mm -hmm. Because they were, they were very political. They gave a lot of fucks. Yeah, they gave a lot of fucks and they created beautiful art around those fucks and Mm -hmm. they ended up on the right side of history. Therefore, we love them. (laughs) Yes. Correct. Correct. (laughs) Wagner also gave a lot of fucks, but we're not going to talk about that. He gave a lot of fucks about really specific things that are less important. <laughs> there are fucks about humanity in general mm-hmm. and the good of the general populace. And then yeah. there are fucks about your own opinion. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about tonight. No, indeed. <laughs> um, for those of you who listened to our last episode, I said that this episode was going to be about Weber. And then, and then I got... pulled a fast one on Tina, and I was like, "Hey, I'm too busy, and I cannot do weekly episodes right now, at least for the summer." So we decided to do some shuffling of our lineup, yeah. basically. But also, it's my birthday in a few days, so I just decided to give myself a birthday present tonight and tell you <gasps> about my favorite opera. Oh my god! Is is it the Rosen Cavalier? 
It's the Rosen Cavalier. Fuck yes. I feel like we've <laughs> talked about this in like half of the episodes that we've done. We've mentioned the Rosen Cavalier. I mean, maybe. I think in the Ariadna um, episode, maybe that was like episode 12, I talked about how Rosen Cav has like the best love story in all of opera. Mm-hmm. And you said that is like a really high standard. Yeah, that's like. <laughs> it's a high sure standard, you're but you're not overselling it. If you had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Are you sure, though? Like, are you going to stand by that statement? I'm going to stand by that statement, but I will tell you that there are things that I think just need to be cut from this opera because it is three acts and it is entirely too long. It's like three hours and 20 minutes. It's oh, that's There's too way too much. And it's like a beautiful love story with like a slapstick farce in the middle. I love it. Um, Which, like, he did a really good job of in Ariadna of Noxos, right? But this is the opera immediately before that. So he, this premiered in January of 1911. And then Ariadna came Ariadna out in 1912. Yes. Yes. This yes. is her third Strauss opera. Speaking of which, Tina, hmm. little teaser, little teaser. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be explicit because I want people to be excited and also have no idea what I'm talking about. That thing that I told you that I'm making so that oh, we yeah. can... So that we can do that special thing for our uh-huh. anniversary. Together. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. officially very much underway. Oh my god, I am so excited. I know, me too. <laughs> Stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I'm a bitch. Um... <laughs> so like I said, it premiered in January of um, 1911, and it puts it smack dab in the middle of the composition of Electra in 1909 and Ariadna of Noxos in 1912. So Strauss was drinking some major inspiration juice those years. Like those were three <laughs> heavy hitters. And then of course World War One hits, and there's like a little bit of a fall off. So yeah, you know, you just you know you need to take some time. Turns out war Let's changes start a podcast. people. <laughs> But when Rosenkav premiered, it was so popular that within two months, there was an entire Italian translation of this three-plus-hour opera so that it could premiere at La Scala. And okay. then it just picked up a whole bunch of steam from there. And I don't know. It's it's cool. This is just one of those operas where I can't possibly portray how amazing it is in an hour-long podcast with inelegant words, and it's just going to fall flat. So I just encourage you to watch it if you can. Okay, but also, like, I want to just pause you and say, don't say that again, because you know you're going to do a better job of explaining this than you're going to give yourself credit for. You always do. And you don't need to apologize for it not being perfect. I'm not saying that it's not going to be perfect. There's just, like, there's the magic of experiencing it live. And I can't imbue this plot with that magic. That's true always, though. This one is particularly nostalgic for you. Yeah, no, yeah I get that. Yeah. I get that. But I'm just saying, like, you said that, and now don't say it again. Because I think okay. we're gonna we're all going to really enjoy this experience. And because we always do. We always, all of us, enjoy hearing opera plots from you. Even if you feel like you're not doing it justice, we still enjoy it. So. Aw, well, I enjoy it, too, and this is my favorite opera, and it's my birthday present that I'm giving to all of you because I'm kind like that. So So then enjoy it. it. (laughs) Enjoy it. Don't shit all over yourself. Just enjoy it. All right. Okay. So. (laughs) God, Mom, stop it. (laughs) 
So the opera is entirely too long, and that is also true of our cast of characters. I counted, and the number is exactly too many. So really, you only need to know four of them, and okay, maybe perfect. like two fringe characters. The rest are just noise. So I can do six. I will... Okay. Well, six, and then maybe like another half character in there. But okay. anyway, okay, manage. I'm just going to introduce them as we meet them. Okay. Act one. The overture is a sex scene. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm into not it. Kidding. I'm into I am it. I'm not kidding. It is. Is, is it, it f- commonly staged? It is commonly staged. It's a cool. fairly short overture and it is commonly staged and you see some hanky panky going on. But if you end up seeing a version that is not staged, all you have to think during this overture is, what sounds like an orgasm? And then you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's another one. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm stoked to watch this later. Oh my so, goodness. Okay. All right. Okay. The curtain opens on important character number 1, the Princess Marie-Thérèse von Werdenberg, known as the Marshalline in this, which Marie-Thérèse very very direct allusion to the Habsburg Empire. Exactly. Exactly. And this is supposed to be like 1740 Habsburgish is when it takes place. Yeah. Yeah. When was this one written? When was it written? Well, it premiered in 1911. Are you saying when when is it staged? I'm curious about when it was being composed. And it sounds like it was composed pre-World War One. Yep. Well, yeah. Right. Pre-World War One. So 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 still the, the Habsburg Empire is still a thing. And we st- and and people like them for the most part, and we like these characters for at the least, most part. At least the librettist does. <laughs> so yeah. So I'm curious how that's gonna look. Interesting. Go. So Marie Therese is known as the Marshalline because she was married off to a field marshal when she was very young, and so she takes her husband's title even though she's a fucking princess. Like whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking weird. And she's no longer very young because she's thirty. Which is freaking old for the 1740s. God damn it. And right now, her husband is out of town, like, field marshalling or whatever, I guess. Like, I don't know what he does. You know what? I gotta say, just real quick. Like, if we look at, um, to use that specific family as a great example, there were, like, fucking 12 kids. Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, or of Prussia. One of the two. Doesn't matter. That monarch empress maria therese had like 12 or 15 kids one of whom ended up being married off to louis the 14th and became marie antoinette um but all of those people technically being princes and princesses can't necessarily go off and be princes and princess like married to other princes and princesses yes and and because patriarchy it would make sense that she would be the marshalline and probably she was a much younger daughter of whomever this family was. Yeah, well, it still sucks because she's a princess. <laughs> I don't like it, but it tracks. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. But also she's old and washed up because she's 30. She's old and washed up because she's 30. <laughs> oh, my God. But her husband is out of town. So because of this, she's taken the liberty of spending the night with her lover, hence the opening sex scene washed up my ass (laughs) and her lover is important character number two the 17 year old octavian (gasps) count rofrano played by a mezzo pants role she's a cougar oh Oh yeah i fucking love this already 
I'm so happy. And the, the entire opera literally starts with this post-coital bliss. They are in bed together. They are wearing very little clothing, if any. And Octavian sings about how much he is just in love with her. And he says, I am your boy. Like, I am yours. Yeah, because he's 17 and she's 30. And therefore, their sexual drives are both peaking. <laughs> The oxytocin in their brains at this moment will never be higher. (laughs) Fair enough. But he's like really convinced that he is truly in love with her. And I actually believe that like, I believe that he really is in love with her as much as anybody can love anybody when they're 17. Yeah, no, I will. Yes, 100%. I don't mean to diminish it. But the psychology person in me also needs to say like, you are a sack of meat with bones and your brain has electricity and the electricity has influenced by oxytocin and you have a lot of oxytocin when you orgasm and then your meat sack falls in love with another meat sack. (laughs) Man, that could be an entire textbook in and of itself. (laughs) It's going to be short. (laughs) Sex drive, according to Amanda. (laughs) So... Octavian suddenly has to hide because a page comes in to bring the Marshallin her breakfast. And then he has to hide again because they hear loud voices outside and the Marshallin thinks maybe it's her husband who's come home early. And there's no escape. There's one way in and out of this room. So Octavian dresses himself as a handmaid, which is one of these things in opera. I don't know if we've come across this yet, but it's, like a, it's Victor a woman. Thing. It's a woman playing a boy disguising himself as a girl. Yeah, that's Victor Victoria, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't seen that one yet. And if it is, don't give it away. No, 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 no. No, this is... Okay, so this is a musical. Julie Andrews. Yep, Julie Andrews. I feel like it came out probably... Oh, my cousin is going to just backhand me if I don't know this. But I I feel like it was probably like post-1950. I absolutely could be wrong about this. Julie Andrews debuted this role, and it is a female performer who is not her career is failing and somehow she happens upon this idea of impersonating a man in her public life and then performing in drag Mm. and her career taking off i think i think is the basic premise of this musical don't you just want to perform in drag because i kind of do yeah i actually saw a tiktok the other day that was like a female drag performer kind of talking about how there's there's this idea that drag as an art form is meant for men impersonating women but she challenges that and basically says that drag is not necessarily for men who want to impersonate women it's for people who want to express femininity in a heightened sense mm. i cannot remember what the what the crux of her argument was but it was really fucking interesting it was really I love it. interesting i will i will try to find it i will try that's awesome that's a different perspective for octavian <laughs> Yeah. Also, it's just something that happens a lot in opera for these pants roles, especially in comic opera where they have to like disguise themselves to get out of things. And they're like, well, let me just dress as a woman. I'm totally I totally wasn't a woman to begin with. (laughs) So Octavian dresses himself as a handmaid and then he goes so far as to give himself a name, Mirandel. So I guess like she's maybe like the eighth character that you should think about because she comes back. 
but he tries to sneak out dressed as the handmaid and then the marshallin's like country cousin comes in and this is important character number three baron ox o-c-h-s and yes it is meant to sound like ox the animal because we quickly get the impression that he is just this old pompous windbag (laughs) okay so the Baron is here because he's recently become engaged to Sophie Fanina, who's important character number four. Sophie is the daughter of a wealthy merchant who's recently been elevated to the status of nobility. So, mm-hmm. of course, marrying into a noble family only solidifies their ties, especially if it's the cousin of mm-hmm. the princess and her mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And Baron Ox gets like a young wife and a handsome dowry out of it. So, you know, why not? Yeah. So despite being recently engaged to this young beautiful thing ox starts making advances towards mirandel and makes a lot of lewd comments in the process oh man this poor kid (laughs) and ox reveals that he's come to his cousin's chambers for two favors one to borrow use of her notary to help finalize his marriage contract and two to ask for her recommendation can you imagine just like you're just bursting in your bedroom old uncle just like coming to your house letting himself in and knocking on your bedroom door and being like hey can i get the number for your lawyer That's funny. Like your least favorite uncle. (laughs) Oh my god. Thank you for that. After you just had sex. (laughs) (laughs) And he's still in the room dressed in women's clothing. (laughs) Oh god. Remember when you thought that this wouldn't be as good as the real thing? I just I have no basis for comparison, but I'm having a really good time. Do you see what I mean by like beautiful love story? But there's like a whole bunch of farce. Like it's almost like it's trying to be a Mozart comedy sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, the second reason he's here is to ask for her recommendation for a young nobleman to be his Rosen Cavalier or Knight of the Rose, which is an old Viennese tradition that was totally made up by the librettist for this opera. Are you serious? Yeah. That's really funny. That's really funny. So, okay. The way the tradition works is that on the groom's behalf, another nobleman bestows a silver rose upon the bride-to-be to mm-hmm. solidify their engagement. Okay. Okay. And that's that's like it. Like the whole okay. thing is built around this made-up tradition. Okay. <laughs> So the marshalin says, oh, I know just the person. Miranda, go fetch that, fetch that portrait of Octavian off my dresser. Which, like, she happens to have, a, like, a little mini portrait painted of him that she keeps in her bedchamber. Wait, hey, wait. So she's offering her boyfriend up as the Rosen Cavalier. Yeah. Because all he's going to do is just, like, deliver a silver rose. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, but also like he's in the room dressed as a woman, which is which is, there's like a layer of fun to it. Like, oh, that go is... fetch the portrait of that Octavian fellow. <laughs> she's fucking with him. I love it. Yeah, I lo- I love it. Like she's oh man, she is just reckless. She is thirty and flirty and thriving. <laughs> I mean, same for another couple of days. <laughs> oh my god, that's right. You're only thirty. Jesus Christ, what the fuck year is it? Nice. 
1921. <laughs> and I was uh-huh. born in 87. Which I was born in 90. I'm an even number. So I'm going to turn 34 this year. I literally have to do the math every single time now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you ask me in three days. I will have to do the math again. <laughs> and the moral of the story here, kids, is that it matters less and less with every passing year. <laughs> I'm finding that. Although 31 is more traumatic than 30 because, like, turning 30 is one thing, but now actually being in my 30s. Nah, it's uh, not so. Okay. No, it's fuck. I fucking love my 30s. I love my 30s. I look back at my 20s and I'm like, God, I was wasting so much time and I was so emotionally volatile and my relationships were just like all over the damn place and my career was just like flailing. And now I like all that behind me and and all that being the groundwork for where I am now. Now I feel like I've got direction. I feel like my relationships are really healthy. I feel like I am so much healthier mentally and physically. I have a really fulfilling home life. That if everything fell apart and I just had my family, I'd be the luckiest person in the world. In my 20s, there was work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> you reached a kind of equilibrium. Yeah. It's taken reached... like over a decade to get to. And yeah, good for you. Yeah. I've figured out what my boundaries are and I've like started to learn how to enforce them and not be afraid of people being uncomfortable with the fact that I'm enforcing a boundary, which is a thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe maybe you feel like you've already hit a lot of these milestones. But for me, I just really feel like your 30s are where it's at. Well, keep that in mind as we talk about the Marshall and as a character, mm-hmm. because I used to really identify with Octavian. And now... Like, and, and admire the Marshall Ann, but now I am totally, like, in her camp, and I know who she is and how she feels because mm-hmm. I'm kind of there. So, anyway, where we left Into off, it. she tells Mirandel to bring his portrait over. fucking with him because it's <laughs> yeah. fun, and she feels a little invincible. <laughs> or she feels a little bit like, fuck it. <laughs> I just love her. I know. <laughs> And then Baron Ox takes, like, a glancing look at the portrait and is like, oh, he'll do. And so he's like, all right, this total stranger like, can present this. like, that's the criteria. This- like, yeah. oh, my God, this this is the stupidest job in the world. <laughs> to have a total stranger present a marriage proposal to your and, future and bride officially. the criteria is just, what does he look like? It's interesting. It's, like, it's an interesting flip of the script of, like, objectification. It's well, like we'll, a dude we'll get some more objectification. Well, later. I'm sure that there's plenty. I'm sure, I'm sure there's no dearth of objectification. But, you know, it's not often that the dudes are being objectified. That's fair. That's all I'm saying. That's fair. So then, or at least this... not explicitly. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just doing it quietly in our heads the rest of the time. Which, again, is funny because he comes in and is, like, looking Miranda up and down, thinking she's this sexy young thing, but she's actually Octavian in disguise. Yeah, that is fine. But then he looks at this portrait and kind of has this aside where he scratches his head and he goes, huh, this maid must be Octavian's bastard sister or something. <laughs> and then he asks the Marshalline, hey, why, can this why maid... a bastard? <laughs> because oh, she's, she's a, a maid. Because she's a maid. Yep, and he's Count Rofrano. Yep. I'm tracking with yep. you. But then he asks the Marshalline, if Mirandel can come work for his new bride, wink, wink. And then she refuses and dismisses her maid to get him out of uh, out of Baron Ox's sight. 
And then in the next scene, the marshaland is like holding court kind of with her constituents and listening to supplicants and such. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some Portuguese ambassador has sent a tenor to come sing for her. It's just like all these fringe characters come in that mean nothing. But I kind of love it because it gives a lot of people opportunities to have like little bit parts that are kind of oh, fun. Oh, yeah. Like when yeah. you're stuck in the chorus in a show, it's still fun. Like you still get to be part of the magic and wear a costume and feel the feels. And also you get to have all the little inside jokes with the chorus because you've got all sorts of like free mental energy. And so mm -hmm. it's fun. But if you get to have a line or you get to sing a little line, you get that little jolt of adrenaline that you just really are craving out the out of the experience. So I, I have, I, I've got respect for the bit parts. Yeah, and I would say there's not actually a chorus on this. There are just a whole bunch of bit parts. A whole bunch of bit parts. That's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. It's like a pseudo ensemble piece. I like that. That's neat. It kind of is, yeah. Where there are like the four main characters and then like two and a half side characters. But I like then, it. Yeah, I like a Portuguese it. tenor and whoever else. Mm -hmm. I like it. So while the Portuguese tenor is singing, Baron Ox sits down with the notary and tries to get him to put this massive dowry into the marriage contract that includes all of the Faninal family land and properties free of mortgages. <laughs> and the notary's like, uh, I can't do that because it's illegal. And then Baron Ox just gets all huffy about it. <laughs> Say that again. He wants the notary to just like take... To demand a gift, to demand a dowry in this marriage contract... Of all of the Faninal family properties, that, sans mortgage. I'm curious what the notary's role is, because in modern society, all the notary is doing is saying, like, I saw this happen, this is legal. And the notary could give a fuck what's happening in the contract, but he can't sign it. Like, the notary wouldn't be able to do anything without both parties agreeing to it anyways. So I'm curious... Mm -hmm. I'm curious how a notary differs in this time period that it that apparently it has that kind of power and can like decline to sign for some reason or another. Maybe he just thinks it's unethical and he just doesn't want to be a part of it. No, I think it's illegal because like the the his future father-in-law has to agree to that thing. I can't just put it in the contract. We have to negotiate these things. Yeah, so he's basically saying like so did the, oh I wonder if the future father-in-law issued the contract and now the baron is trying to amend the contract and have you the are getting sign off on it way too in the weeds of a side I'm sorry. thing which is I'm just sorry. meant to I've show been... you that Baron Ox is a pompous ass who just thinks that he can own the world because I'm of who sorry. he is I'm sorry that's totally the takeaway I yeah sorry everybody my brain has been in like hyper analytical mode for the last couple of weeks at work and it's hard to turn off <laughs> it's okay it's okay. I will pull you back. Thank I will pull you. you on back. Okay, so here are the two side characters that I mentioned you might want to know about. They are Italian sellers of intrigue. They're like gossip mongers. And they sellers like... of intrigue. Yeah. So they're the TMZ of the 1700s. That went over my head. What is that? You don't know what TMZ is? You blessed, uh -uh. blessed child. <laughs> do you not want to tell me and save my ignorance? Yeah, I, I really okay. do. I really, really do. Just trust me that it's a good analogy. I'm going to Google it later. Okay. No, don't, don't. Um, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. I Consider me spared. Um, so the two Italian sellers of intrigue, Valzacci and Anina, and they offer their services to the Marshall Line. They're like, we can spy for you. We can pick up gossip for you. And she's like, nah, I don't need you. And then 
Throughout this scene, the Marshallin sees herself in the mirror and sees how, like, her hairstylist has done her hair that day, and she just looks particularly old and matronly, and that time is just slipping away from her, and so she orders everyone out so she can be alone. And as everybody's leaving, Balzacci and Anina offer their services to Baron Ox and say, um, like, we'll spy for you or do whatever it is that you need. And he says, have you heard about this maid named Mirandel? And they lie and they're like, oh yeah, we know all about her. And so they are now like officially in his services to like make contact with her for him. Mm. And then once the room is cleared, the Marshallin is just thinking about her youth and how she was married off as a young girl to some ass of a man, just like poor Sophie is about to be married off to her ass of a cousin. Mm-hmm. And she just feels like she's sitting there powerless watching it all happen again. And like, what if I could do this again? Like, who would I have been had this not happened to me? Mm-hmm. And then Octavian comes back and he's dressed in his own clothes and he can tell she's upset and he tries to comfort her. And of course he can't totally understand because he's 17, 17. and you don't understand what it is to be quote unquote old when you are 17 he's like i'm so sorry would it make you feel better if we had sex right now yeah exactly (laughs) and the marshallin's like not having any of it she's like i just can't right now and she tells him someday you're gonna leave me for somebody who's younger and prettier than i am and he's like that's never gonna happen no way i like this whole opera started with us having sex and then i told you about how much i love you like this is forever. We're never going to break up. Exactly. And she's oh like... Oh my God, raise your hand if you were 17 and said those words. Oh my God. Both raise their hands along with most of the listeners. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so he's like, what the hell do you mean? And she's so like... idealistic. She's like preparing herself for the day when this is going to happen. She knows it's going to happen and she's going to have to let him go. Mm -hmm. And she sends him away because they're just like on different planets at the moment. And she realizes when she sends him away, oh, I forgot to kiss him goodbye. But it's too late to call him back and give him that goodbye kiss. Foreshadowing. (laughs) So she summons her page boy. Um, to bring the silver rose to Octavian for the ceremony. And then she goes back to staring at herself in the mirror and contemplating her lost youth. And that's the end of act one. Ugh. I would say, ah, fuck it. She's only 30. But like, I, I, I can't lie to you and say that I don't have that thought every now and again for a plethora of reasons. Like what would my career be like if I had made different decisions in college? What would my, life be like if i had made different decisions in high school and like what would remember when my body used to look like x <laughs> like just stupid <laughs> those stupid feelings where you're like oh i've got wrinkles or like oh there's these dark circles under my eyes that i have to like use concealer to cover up and like not have to choose to <laughs> but yeah. yeah just all that stuff it's just, it just you know it, it pops into your head it's a little it's a little snaky snake in your ear yeah yeah, it, just, it happens. I mean, when you're 30 in 1740, that's practically ancient. Well, and when you're 30 and you're dating a 17-year-old, I mean, you're just, like, rubbing your own face well, in the fact that you're you're older. You know, like, you just... Yeah. You're, Let me point out the double standard here, though. Oh, yeah. Because Baron Ox, her ass of a cousin, is marrying some young girl Younger and nobody bats her. an eye. Right, right, right. No, no, totally. Like, no, 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 no. I, I'm, not, I'm not purporting that... 
it's like weird. I mean, <laughs> by modern standards, it's very weird. Um, but I'm not so much saying that the age gap is weird. I'm more saying like inadvertently she hasn't done herself any psychological favors in terms of allowing herself to normalize her age mm-hmm. by partnering with somebody who is half her age and who is occupying a specific part of life that is just like teeming with youthfulness and verve and possibility and just like that that would make it extra hard oh yeah yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter how good the sex is. That's going to make it extra hard. <laughs> yeah. But she's at the same time preparing herself for the inevitability of him finding love somewhere else. Mm-hmm. 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 So, like, she she knows it's coming. <laughs> it's like the emotional equivalent of dyeing your hair. <laughs> like, you know eventually you're going to be covered in grays. And right now there's just a couple of them. So you're just going to cover him up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just not think about it for another couple months. (laughs) I keep telling myself I'm just going to go gray gracefully. When it comes in, it comes in. I hope you do. My mom, uh, you know, dyed her hair for years and whatever. And I do for fun. Um, But my mom now, she's, oh my God, how old is my mom? Let's see. She's going to hate me if I say it. Um, Old enough. Old enough. (laughs) She's a grandma, and she was 32 when she had me. So go ahead and do some quick, you know, estimating mental math. But um, she has incredible silver hair. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. Like, the top layer is just, like, whitish silver, and then this under layer is this, like, charcoal gray, and it's Ooh. thick. It's super cool. It's super, super cool. And if I could just, you know, snap my fingers when I turn 60 and have that be my hair, fantastic. It's the it's the middle stages that are frustrating. Mm, no? That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But I feel like once I'm, like, gray enough, I'll probably do something crazy like bleach everything and do that silver. Yeah. So that I literally can control and just be like, okay, now I'm going to be gray. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Okay, enough, enough of a man digress. You ready for act two? <laughs> no, I want some more wine. <laughs> oh, do Wait, you need to take three, a break now? It's three acts. It's oh, three acts. You're right. You can get wine now. If you didn't plan intermission to be between acts one and two, then I will wait. Okay. All right. That's very big of you. <laughs> <laughs> act two, we finally meet Sophie and her father, who we will just call Fanny Nam from this point on. And Sophie, what? Fanny Fanny Nam. Fanny Nam. It's their Fani. last name. Oh, okay. Sophie Fanny Nam and Herr Fanny Nam. Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sounds and like nonsense. <laughs> That's cause wine. <laughs> <laughs> So Sophie is nervous about the impending arrival of the Rosen Cavalier, and it's a tradition for the father to leave before the Knight of the Rose appears and then return with her future husband at the end. So he leaves the room, and Sophie is alone with her maid, and she is trying to maintain her composure, but the maid keeps looking out the window and going, oh my gosh, look at this procession, and they're all dressed in silver, and there's so much pomp and circumstance, and Sophie's like, my life is changing really fast, I will remain calm. (laughs) 
Oh my god! And she's it's I'm really assuming fun. she's supposed to be about seventeen too. Like oh, probably really young. even younger. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, she's the daughter of this rich merchant who's just been elevated. Yeah, you she know, probably like, just got on the market and somebody snatched her up. So let's go with fourteen. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> accurate. <laughs> So Octavian, of course, arrives and he's dressed all in silver, holding this silver rose. And the two are immediately drawn to each other. I think you kind of saw this coming. I did. And so he he gives her the rose and they have a conversation, like a real legitimate, like heart to heart conversation. And they get to know each other. And Sophie tells him, I already know all about you because I studied all of the uh, Austrian nobility before marrying into it. Like, I know you. I know all of your names. I know your nickname. (laughs) Ooh. I'm not sure and then, how to think about that. Well, said she Octavian. just studied very hard to be prepared to be in this place. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's a big move for her family to be elevated and then to marry into actual nobility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you better know what you're doing so you don't make an ass of yourself. Yeah. And then she tells Octavian that she likes him very much. <laughs> and then Octavian got a tingly feeling in his pants. And he did. And then Sophie's father returns with Baron Ox to meet his bride-to-be for the first time, and he immediately reveals himself to be a pompous ass, talking very loudly about Sophie's body and objectifying her. And Sophie actually tries to stand up for herself, and then he goes as far as comparing her to an unbroken filly. Uh-huh. <laughs> So then, you know, he approves of whatever the objective appearance of his bride to be. So he leaves with Fondinal to finalize the details of the marriage contract, maybe to try and get some of those properties sans a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And then Octavian turns to her and says, There is no way I'm going to let that ass hat get his hands on you. And Sophie's Aww. like, Please help. <laughs> so gallant. And then they sing this duet where they realize that they're having tingly feelings for each other and they go as far as to touch <gasps> gasp <laughs> and then the italian gossip mongers come in and they see them together and they're like we're gonna tell baron ox because we're in his employ and ox kind of laughs it off thinking that octavian is not a threat and then octavian challenges him to a duel <laughs> oh, but God. this is this is my favorite part because my, my favorite staging of this is octavian draws his sword Ox scratches his arm on Octavian's sword on purpose and then throws like this melodramatic fit and collapses into a chair and calls for a nurse and a doctor like, oh, I've been attacked. What a weenie. Right? What? Oh my God. (laughs) Of all the farcical things that happen, that is my favorite. Just bloviating. Yeah. (laughs) He's sort of reminding me of a specific public figure that we think about a lot less Mm -hmm. these days. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we get into that, I'm just going to tell you, the entire household comes rushing in to see what's going on. And Sophie begs her father to call off the wedding because, like, obviously this guy is an idiot and you wouldn't want him to be married into our family. And her father says, nope, Octavian, get the hell out of here. And if you don't marry this man, I'm going to send you to a convent. Now go to your room. So she's, like, stuck. What is, hang on, hang on. What is Octavian's rank, I guess? He's a count. Which is under a baron. Must be. I don't think so. I think a count is higher than a baron. Well, then why the fuck? So did I understand correctly that Octavian and Sophie went in to talk to Sophie's father and said this can't happen? 
everybody is here. It's a very public thing that is happening right now where this man that Faninal has just drafted a marriage contract with has been challenged to a duel by the person who presented the rose. And it's been a very public affair. And of course, Faninal is just trying to save face. I need to know if a baron is above account or not, because yes, I get it that he's trying to save face. Count is the continental counterpart of Earl, sort of a mid-level nobility ranking above a baron and below a duke. Okay. So yeah, I guess I'm curious then as to why the father wouldn't just be like, do you have an alternate proposition? I think it's like a treaties between families kind of thing. And mm. also Baron Ox is the cousin of the princess. Oh yeah, that. So alliances and whatnot. And also saving face. <laughs> so moving on, once the general chaos settles down, Ox is the only one left and he's sitting in an armchair. His arm is in a sling. He's drinking port and he's just sitting there wondering how he's going to get revenge on Octavian. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is Harry Potter when Malfoy like disrespects Buckbeak the hippogriff and he gets like a little scratch on his arm and then he throws a fit and there are lawyers involved and Buckbeak yes. has to be put to death it's his prisoner yeah. basket band I'm talking about yeah 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 it's yeah. basically yeah. that he's Malfoy <laughs> which is so funny because the analogy that I was thinking of is an interesting uh also comparison to Malfoy okay there we have it but like old he's like malfoy's grandpa and oranger oh yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so as he's sitting there in the chair drinking his port and contemplating revenge for the scratch anina sneaks in and gives him this letter which is apparently from mirandel the chambermaid and ox just suddenly forgets his oh-so-severe injury and waltzes across the stage with joy for having so much mojo. Oh, my God. As if to I get the attention this, of this chambermaid. <laughs> if I was staging this purely for the slapstick, I would have him literally, like, take off his sling <laughs> and go yep. read the letter. <laughs> Just throw it off. <laughs> Honestly, like, if that's as far as the slapstick goes, I would be so happy. But sometimes I think the slapstick gets in the way of the love story. Mm. But we'll get there. Anyway, Anina wants a tip for her services. After all, like, she procured this letter. Hello, pay me. Mm -hmm. And he refuses. So the act ends with her quietly dick. swearing she's going to get even. Good. Man, he is just an asshole. He is yeah. just an asshole. Yes. I mean, they're doing a real good job. I mean, of they're kind of him hitting him. you over the head with it. I mean, they are. That, that's what that's kind of what I meant. What I was about to say is like he's not a very complex character. No, but this does this does smack of a Mozart comedy. Yeah, especially with like I mean, we're gonna get to it in the third act as well, where it's like it's like an act two finale of Mozart, which is all about c confusion and adding characters and more characters and the mm -hmm. confusion building, and there's a lot of slapstick and like mistaken identities, and that's exactly what's happening here isn't that it's not light motif i'm trying to think we talked about a long long time ago now almost a year ago we talked about there was a specific composer who kind of invented 
Oh, I know where you're going with this. You're the, going like, Rossini. Layering. Rossini. Rossini Crescendo. Rossini, yes, the Rossini yes. Crescendo. Yeah, this is... I guess, yeah. I mean, the Rossini Crescendo, I would say, is very much to create chaos and confusion in many cases in his comic operas. And so it is a lot like a Mozart finale. Yeah. Yeah. This smacks of that. Now you ready for wine? Yeah. (laughs) All right. See you in a second. You ready? I'm ready. Act three. And I promise I won't cry. Actually, I can't promise that. But act oh three. Okay. <laughs> Goodness. We open with Valsacci and Anina, and they are just fed up with Baron Ox, along with probably the rest of the audience at this point. Yep. Yep. So they've switched their allegiances to Octavian, and they help him plan a trap for the Baron. So they're setting up this meeting between the Baron and Mirandel at some seedy hotel. And there is this cozy dinner for two waiting for them when they arrive. Wait, so Octavian dresses up as Mirandel and is like yeah. going with the Baron to this yeah. cozy dinner for... Oh my God. Uh-huh. Oh God, that must be so... Oh Lordy, okay. So okay. the Baron <laughs> is like really excited and also probably like half erect at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <But> he's... <laughs> Also, a tad distracted by the fact that Miranda looks so much like his new nemesis, Octavian. Hmm. Strange. Well, hadn't he already put his finger on the fact that maybe it's the bastard sister? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So the two sit down to their cozy dinner, and there's this, there's a whole bunch of, like, slapstick stuff that I think can just be cut from this. Like, we could turn this into a beautiful, like, wrap it into a bow, two-act opera, and just because I love it doesn't mean it doesn't need to change. <laughs> so, oh, make they... that a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> so there's this bit about ox seeing glimpses of apparitions out of the corner of out of, of his eye like just to make him feel crazy right and then anina bursts in dressed as a noble lady proclaiming that ox is her husband and he's the father of all these children who are now running around circles like circles around him calling him papa oh my god and... <laughs> And again, that bit can just be cut, in my opinion. I don't it's think so it's necessary funny. to the story. <laughs> it so is, funny. but but it's not. It's supposed to be a love story. But anyway, okay. So at this, the Baron is like, what the heck is going on? He calls the police. And when they arrive, they start questioning him as if he's the suspicious one. And the police inspector... I mean... <laughs> well. <laughs> but he's lineup. the one who called the cops. <laughs> Well, this conversation is about to be a downer if we talk about instances where the person who calls the cops is the person who then gets targeted by the cops. Nope, we can't go there. I'm not prepared to be that kind of sad right now. Okay, so the police inspector points to Miranda and says, Who's this woman with you? And Baron Ox is like, oh, that's my fiance, Sophie Faninal. <laughs> and just then, Herr Faninal arrives because he got some message saying that Ox summoned him. And he's like, why would you summon me to this disreputable place? <laughs> and the police inspector indicates Octavian an address and says to Faninal, is that your daughter? And Faninal is like, uh, no, Ew. my actual daughter is outside. And he comes to the realization that 
his soon-to-be son-in-law is in some seedy hotel with another woman. <laughs> so he's, he immediately understands that this man is a lecherous asshole. Good. Yes. And then Sophie appears confirming her actual identity and, mm-hmm. you know, just to comfort her upset father. And then Ox tells the police, I'll give you guys a private statement. Like, let's just get out of this chaos and I'll tell you what really happened. And then he sees this women's clothing everywhere that was Mirandel's. But now Octavian is divested of the women's clothing and the ruse. <laughs> just <laughs> real quick, just takes it all off and is wearing yeah. a full outfit underneath it. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Yep. 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 Okay, yep. I, mean, I guess there's one way to do it. <laughs> So Baron Ox realized that he's been had and he's about to fly into this rage when in comes the Marshallan and she kind of restores a sense of calm and orders all non-essential personnel to clear the room. And she tells Ox, yeah. Who the fuck are these? Who are the non-essential personnel? <laughs> Anina and the kids she paid to call Baron Ox Papa. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, okay. That's, the police that's fair. and whatever. Oh, sure. yeah. Okay, the police. Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. Okay, 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 okay. So okay. she basically says, like, look, dude, the jig is up. They conspired against you to get you out of this. Well, basically to get Sophie out of this engagement. And, like, you're an ass and it's over. And so he threatens to tell the Marshallin's husband about her actual relationship with Octavian. And she gives him this stare down and says, you are not going to do that. <laughs> and then he backs down. What? She just... She stares him down and says, you will do no such thing. And then he just cowers, I guess, I mean, at the he sheer is, power he of is her a will. weenie. We know he's a weenie, but wow. I mean, like... That, Badass woman. I was going to say, that speaks volumes about the character of the Marshallin. Yes. So we are left with Octavian, the Marshallin, and Sophie in the room together. And Octavian is just at a loss for what to do because he loves the Marshallin, but he created all of this chaos to get Sophie out of yeah. her engagement. And now what? Like, what do I do? Yeah. And the Marshallin takes charge and introduces herself to Sophie. And then the trio starts. And I said I wasn't going to cry, but I'm going to cry. <laughs> this is the real reason I love this opera. It is this trio. Like, it is so long and there's so much silliness that happens. But then you get to this and it is like the absolute payoff for everything that you have sat through. So the Marshallin, basically all three of them are singing their own lines about like, this is the emotion that I'm feeling in this moment. Mm-hmm. And the Mar- Marshallin says that she promised herself that she would love Octavian the right way and would love mm-hmm. him completely, even mm-hmm. if it meant having to love the fact that he's fallen in love with someone else. Mm-hmm. And she didn't think this moment would come so soon, but here it is. And she's going to yeah. face it with grace. I know. Are you crying? Because I'm crying. <laughs> I mean, like, that's genuinely really touching. And, like, Didn't I tell you it's the best love story in all of opera? Yeah. I'm kind of <laughs> really, 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 really digging this. Go on. And Sophie says that she feels like the Marshallin is giving Octavian to her. And what an incredible gift. But, of course, she's taking a piece of Octavian away because he's going to be heartbroken because it's the end of, of them, else, despite yeah. their new love. Yeah. And Octavian is saying, like, have I done something wrong here? And the one person I could ask if I've done something wrong is the one person I can't ask because yeah. it's over. Yeah. And all of it just builds and builds wow. and builds to the emotional and musical climax of the entire opera. This trio is incredible. 
And I wish, I wish, I wish I could point you to a good recording of it. But the problem is the orchestra doubles the voices a lot of the time. And it just becomes mush in recordings. And it's one of those oh. things where you have to experience it in the space because when you hear it in the space, you get overtones like crazy between the voices where like literally their harmonic sequences are like rubbing together in an cool. overtone. And it's just, it's such a cool experience that you can't have. It, it's it's just magic that doesn't transfer to a recording. So Okay. Now I, that live theater is a thing again, if, if, if this opera comes close enough by and if you have the hookups for the for the ticks that are yeah. not super expensive let's go together seriously oh my god yes podcast field trip. i'm picky about who i see operas with because so many people want you to sit inside of their energy you know mm-hmm. and and gush about it the way that they want to gush about it and for mm. me like i need to experience it on my own terms yes. and i feel like i could be that person with you Yep, I that's kind of how I see live theater generally. I had to think about that for a second. Maybe improv comedy is a little different for me, but for the most part when I'm in a live theater setting, I am really zoned in on what's happening on stage. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And I might have a moment here or there of like, oh my god, did you see that with the person <laughs> sitting next to me? But it's like a really interesting like specific energy exchange. Yeah. And actually, that is a really interesting subconscious vetting that I think I've done throughout my life of like friends and lovers is like if we go to a live show together, when I feel like there should be a mutual moment of, oh, my God, did you see that? If I look over at you, are you zoned in, which is great, or are you zoned out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're zoned out, you're off the list. Yes. <laughs> But sometimes I want to, like, sit in the sadness of, of the emotion. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, my God, it was so sad. It was so incredible. Did you feel how sad it was? And I'm like, I cannot be as hyped as you right now because I'm still sitting because with that I'm, emotion. I'm like, doing the sad. Yeah. Back totally. off on my sad. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So the trio is not where this ends. At the end of the trio, the marshalin says, so be it. And she turns around and walks away. And Sophie and Octavian are left together alone and they rush into each other's arms and they sing this duet about their new love. And in this interlude, the Marshallan and Fanny Nal come in and just see them together and see how happy they are together. And Fanny Nal says, the young will be young and do as the young do. And the Marshallan says, yeah, yeah, and walks away again. <laughs> like this is her final time walking away from Octavian. And then Sophie and Octavian sing another verse of the duet, and that's the end of the opera. Oh. Yeah, the Marshallin is definitely, wow. She might be one of my favorite characters. When people yeah. say, like, if you could sing any character despite voice type, because she's, like, a basically a dramatic soprano, mm-hmm. um, I say her. Yeah. I think just the emotional depth of that character and the absolute grace this is no you know what i feel like your your high praise was definitely not overhyped i think that this is definitely my favorite love story so far that we've talked about yay (laughs) this is no it's really i feel validated yeah it's really cool and i think that like it's really progressive in some ways Mm -hmm. like the the fact that like all three of them 
like jealousy isn't entering into it. No, it's it's completely selfless. It's devoid of jealousy. It's totally selfless and it's and it's like even on the part of Sophie who has nothing invested in a relationship with the Marshall Inn and who is young and who is most likely to be predisposed to insecurity and jealousy mm-hmm. is talking about how she recognizes that she's glad to have him, but she knows that a piece of him will leave with the Marshall Inn. And then, and that's just, and, and, and she's not jealous about it so much as she is observing it. Yeah. Well, and recognizing it as a gift that is being given to her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's amazing. I think that so often, once you are aware of the fact that monogamy is the gold standard Mm -hmm. and jealousy is like a default setting for anything that exits outside of monogamy, once you know that, it's everywhere. Like the, the love triangle concept is just absolutely permeating every every form of storytelling you can imagine jealousy is like the pivot point for most stories romantic and sexual jealousy is the pivot point for most stories and like okay and like obviously monogamy is a wonderful and valid choice as is any other type of of lifestyle it's really interesting and far more compelling to me when we see versions of love stories that don't hinge on this petty insecurity that yeah. we see way too often in, again, all forms of, of storytelling. It's just so, if, if nothing else, it's unimaginative. It's two-dimensional. Yeah. You know? and, and it's so much more interesting and human frankly and and evolved to look at it mature maybe not evolved but mature like jealousy is petty jealousy is childish jealousy is totally unaware of the complexities of human relationships yeah and for that reason alone this is a far superior love story than most that we've talked about yeah even when we're talking about a mutual a mutual affinity and like an egalitarian style relationship, which is already a rarity, this is still a step beyond that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, you didn't just, write it. <laughs> no, I just, I love this opera so much. And it, it, I feel like when other people understand it the way that I do, it, it makes me feel validated, but yeah. I, I I mean I guess yeah validated. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's all legit. I can say. No, you feel you feel really you feel very attached to it, and it is attached to you in a profound way. So yeah, that makes sense. You're allowed to feel validated. I was just giving you shit. I have to totally <laughs> pivot. Do you see this poster behind me right now? Yes, we've talked about the poster behind you right now, and I know well, that that is of the Rosen Cavalier. So for the listeners who can't actually see it right now, it is Take a screenshot. I totally should. I'll just end a picture because I look like sweaty right now. But anyway. Oh, no, um... you look so cute. <laughs> so Rafal Olbinski is one of my favorite artists. I'm super into like modern surrealist art. And he does like hyper-realistic surrealist art. Um, but he is this Polish, like, I-, I guess he's mostly known for his performing arts posters. And he does these opera posters, which basically put the entire plot of an opera into a single poster. And if you look at this, it really is the entire plot of Rosen Cavalier. Oh, wow. 
because, I mean, you guys wow. obviously can't see it, but it's the Marshallin's hand and Octavian is standing on the back of it and he is stepping off into the palm of Sophie's hand mm-hmm. with the silver rose. With the silver rose. It's the whole plot of the opera minus the bloviating asshole. Ex- well, it's the whole plot of the opera that matters. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I told you at the beginning, this is a beautiful love story with, like, a slapstick farce in the middle of it. No, you know, I like that, though. Because, like, it, it it saves the three-dimensionality for the Marshallin, Octavian, and Sophie. And it doesn't mm. bother with three-dimensionality for the character who, for all intents and purposes, could be that traditional pivot point of jealousy and ownership of a person that's the thing jealousy is based in this idea that you own another person that you're entitled to another person yes and that would be him that would be the baron right Mm -hmm. and because that's not supposed to be the pivotal point of this plot the pivotal point of this plot because (laughs) because that's not the thing he he gets to embody that but he also doesn't deserve the the weight yeah of of the other characters and so he can be this clown buffoon two-dimensional doesn't learn anything character and he can break tension for us i just think there's too much of it of the two this is one of the two longest roles in all of opera the other one is longest roles yes the baron is one of the longest like he sings the most Yes. And the other one is Susanna in The Marriage of Figaro. Oh. So it's it's too much is what I'm saying. There are some things that could be cut and the farce would still be there, but it wouldn't be over the top. Yeah, I could see that. I feel like the way that you told it, it didn't feel like too much. But of course, I'm not taking into account the length of the aria or how much recit this person gets or just generally stage time yeah that that would that would be off-putting if it was too much because you're totally right that like i mean my instinct back you know 20 minutes ago was to say oh they're doing a really good job of displaying this person as being very clearly the bad guy and you said they're beating you over the head with it and my not having seen the opera that wasn't my initial takeaway, but this puts it into a little clearer context that, like, if he's yeah. on stage as much as that, then, yeah, that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> In a three-plus-hour opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I said, just because I love it doesn't mean that there are not things that don't change. need to improve. <laughs> I love that. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. First of all, like, welcome back to the show. We are glad yeah. to be back. And, and see you, you in know, two more weeks. <laughs> just, you know, take the time in between episodes to, like, listen to other episodes. Listen to one of our favorite podcasts. Um, I, one of the inspirations for this show was a podcast called The Dollop, which is, like, big leagues and it's so fun. Um, it's an American history podcast. It's also bi-weekly. And the format was really fun and inspiring to me. Um, It's a little bit extra lowbrow as far as content and humor goes. Um, But basically, 
Dave Anthony, comedian Dave Anthony, gives a history. Like, he, he researches the topics, much like Tina does. And he tells it to his partner, also comedian Gareth Reynolds, who knows absolutely nothing about what the topic <laughs> is. And they just kind of riff off of each other for usually about an hour like we do. That's really fun. Another one is thank you places. If you're a person in the arts, that's a lot of fun. Our um, compatriot Anna Hashizume, who was in episode nine, I believe, when we talked about Turandot. Mm -hmm. uh, she is the host of that podcast, and she hosts a ton of artists, in, specifically in the Minneapolis area, and just talks about what that life is like and what are the challenges and different different types of artistry. Um, we've talked about The Score, which is the Minnesota Opera podcast that specifically talks about race and um I guess things that stem off of that topic matter in relation to performing arts. I will say another one of the inspirations for this show is one of my favorite podcasts called Overdue, which is a podcast about the books you've yes. been meaning to read. Yes, yes. <laughs> I could do their intro because I listen to it so much. But basically <laughs> these two best friends each read a book. So so they take turns. One reads a book one week and the other one acts as audience surrogate, surrogate mm -hmm. kind of like this show. Yeah, um, like this show. Yeah, so but they, we don't take turns is... because we don't trust Amanda with the plots. <laughs> <laughs> I would trust you with the plot. I would not. <laughs> But they, the whole premise is it has to be a book that they've never read before, so mm. it's totally new to them, and they want you to be able to have like a, a, a cocktail conversation about the book by the end of yeah. the show. And they get a little silly, but it's a little more highbrow than highbrow than the dollop. Yeah, the dollop is much more lowbrow than overdue, but they're both really fun. And then libations for everyone. Libations for everyone. Yes, we got to be guests on libations for everyone a few weeks ago. If you listen to episode. I think 16, Akhenaten, we had one of the hosts of Libations for Everyone, Ben Kwam, on the show, and it was so much fun, and I've been thinking, I really want to have both of them on the show, and I want to do it soon. Yes! I Let's think that do would it. be really, really fun. I think it'll be a shit show, and it'll be a two-hour episode, but I think it'll be really fun. I, I promise to edit it. <laughs> I... Down to two hours. Down, yeah, down to two hours. Sounds correct. <laughs> Sounds correct. All right. Everybody, I have derailed this goodbye. This is what we call the Minnesota goodbye. If you're not from Minnesota, you don't know this. Um, in Minnesota, when we say goodbye, we start in the living room. When everybody's sitting down, we say, well, we should probably get going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And everybody stands up and you move to the kitchen and you talk a little bit more about you know what are you gonna do this week or what do you got going on this summer and oh, what the, what are the kids up to and oh geez say hi to so-and-so and you get the coats on you say well we better get going oh yeah we got to get you out and you drive safe and well you walk over to the door and then you do hugs and then you talk a little bit more and then you um leave the door and the host says well let me walk you to your car and you walk into the car and you talk a little more and you give hugs it goes on a long time is the point a the very irony very the long time irony of that is that you just turned this goodbye into even more of a minnesota goodbye by telling people about the minnesota goodbye i am a hundred percent aware of this <laughs> okay. fact 100%. well with that hundred <laughs> percent 
Thanks for listening. And if you didn't get enough of a Minnesota goodbye, you can email us and request a longer goodbye from Amanda at opraplothappyhour at gmail.com. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Yes, and you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there drum roll please please rate and review us because it helps other people find the show and because it makes us feel good about ourselves and next week's composer actually two weeks from now is composer <gasps> that's yeah, not as ch- elegant to say and in a couple weeks in a couple we're gonna weeks. talk about yeah there we go there it is all right in a couple weeks our composer will actually be Weber, and his name is actually Carl Maria von, not Anton. I was thinking Webern, so don't oh, don't research the second Viennese school for Carl the next Maria von Be- Weber. Okay, okay, all right, okay, I can do that. I'm gonna leave you with the words of Indian actress Asin. I have always believed that love is what helps you develop into the best person you are. It's a selfless emotion. But people usually follow the corrupted version. Jealousy, turning something to see, <laughs> swimming through sick lullabies, choking on your alibis. But it's just the price I pay. Destiny is calling me. Open up my eagle eyes. <laughs> eagle eyes. Is that what it is? Eager, eager eyes. Eager eyes.